what a great song during some crazy times. We're going to take a few minutes this morning and pray for Ukraine and what's going on in the world. But I want to give a couple announcements first. One is within, on March 13th, we're going to have a guest speaker come in. His name's Brian Murphy. He's a good friend of mine. And it's going to be our first in a two-week series called Reach the Nations. So mark that on your calendar, but we're going to do something a little different. It's going to be like a seminar, and it will be first hour and second hour. And Brian's going to take us through what's going on in the world and how we can impact the world. So please join us. We won't have any connection classes that day, all the way from high school, I mean junior high on up. We'll still have it for the little kids. So plan on that. That'll be March 13th. And then the following week, on March 20th, we're going to do, what are we doing in Bakersfield? How are we reaching Bakersfield? So put those on your calendars. So <clears throat> we need to pray. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world. And uh, I'm one of those guys, I love to study end times or eschatology. And it's pretty crazy when you study the Bible and you see what Russia's doing. Um, and in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 talks about the, the north, the king of the north coming down. So it's very interesting. We're living in some crazy times. But the best thing we can do right now is pray. And so I want to give you four things to pray for, to think about this week, and maybe just take these before God. One is that God will be made known. Pray about that. Throughout our history, from the beginning of time till now, during persecution is when people come to know the Lord. It's pretty amazing. And I was studying what's going on in Ukraine, and I didn't realize how big the evangelical church is in Ukraine. And as I was studying it, a number, a lot of pastors have decided to stay at their churches in the midst of this war. And they said, we're going to take care of our people. And I thought, wow. They're standing for God. So that would be the second thing is pray for the churches in Ukraine. That they will stand and they'll shine the light of Christ in a, in a world that's going crazy. I can't imagine their world right now being displaced. The third thing is the gospel and Jesus. People need to know the gospel. That's our only hope. It's not in what the world can do or what the kings and the leaders can do. It's Jesus. He's on the throne. Amen? And you need to remember that. That's why I love that song. Behold our God. He's on the throne. Last thing is, the Bible commands us to pray for leaders in the world. We need to be praying for our leaders, Ukraine's leaders, Russian leaders. Pray for them. Have, you know, just pray, say, God, give them wisdom in what they're doing. We're living in some pretty crazy times. Well, last night, a couple elders called me, and next week, after each service, we're going to take a time down here and pray. So come back for that. We're going to just sort of get it more formalized and organized. So please come and do that. So um, today, I'm going to continue in our series in Titus, and we're going to take first a few minutes to pray. And so just join me as I pray for the world and what's going on. 
Lord, we, uh, we need to come before You in times like this. You're the only one that has answers. And Lord, I pray for the churches. I pray for the people that have been displaced. And Lord, I pray for the people that are caring. I, I pray that You just intervene in this situation. I pray that Your light will shine. I pray that the gospel will go out well. Lord, I pray for those churches and those pastors that made a commitment to stand strong. I pray that you encourage them, embolden them to preach your word because you are the answer. And Lord, I do pray for all the leaders involved in this that they will seek your face. They will learn from you. And Lord, I pray that we can have answers to those around us that are struggling at this time. I pray that you just give us wisdom how to talk to people, how to share that this, this isn't really our home and that you're in control and that you're on the throne. And Lord, today I pray that you just guide and direct my words as we look at an amazing text this morning. Pray that my words honor you. And Lord, most of all, I pray that we learn something from you. And we pray this in your very precious name of your Son, who paid the ultimate price for our sins. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, grab your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2. We're going to look at Titus chapter 2, 11 through 15. And I've entitled this Radical Change. And um, there was a question that used to plague me a long time ago. Most of you or some of you know that I've worked both in industry and in ministry. Uh, more years in ministry now than in industry. But I was uh, working at an oil company and I... Uh, this question sort of just kept coming up in my head. Do people know that I'm a Christian, not by just my words, but by my behavior? How do they view me? And I would pray about that. And I kept wondering, God, do they know? Because oftentimes in ministry, you just assume people are believers. But that question plagued me. I'll give you the answer later. And what happened? You know, we, God's called us to live radically different. And throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, God's in the business of radically changing people. He likes to take a prideful, sinful, secular person and change them into a humble Patient, righteous person. And he's in the business of doing that. And he does it throughout your life. When you come to know Christ, he starts working on you. And he says, I'm going to change you. I want you to be just like my son. God's in the business of radical transformation. And the text we're going to look at deals with that subject. Titus is also a book that uh, gives great practical instruction and great deep doctrinal truths. 
Titus accompanied Paul on his third missionary journey. And then eventually, Paul takes him to the island of Crete and says, you're going to be the pastor of this pagan culture in Crete. And he was a young man similar to Timothy. But Paul had discipled him and had trained him well. So Paul pins this letter. Remember, Paul is the writer. God's the author. God's the author of all 66 books in the Bible. And he's writing to this young man, but he's also writing to us. This book is for us. To challenge us in our walk and how we live. Last week we noticed, and if you didn't get time to hear that sermon, I recommend going back and listening to it. He gave instructions to older men and to older women and to young men and young women and to workers and to bosses. Very practical insights. So let's take a look at this text. If you got your Bibles, look at 2, 11 through 15. I like to teach a class, so does Andy. We both like to teach a class called Inductive Bible Study Method, or it's part of hermeneutics. And so I like to mark things as I study. So I'm, when you see the slide, you'll see some yellow things, and I like to mark them because they're things that need to be emphasized in the text. So follow along when he says four, and I, I think you got to mark that because you've got to go back to the context of the, the chapter uh, preceding this. For the grace of God has appeared. So highlight appeared. Something has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people. Training us, mark that, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled. God wants us to live differently. So mark that. Upright and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing... Mark that again. That's the second time he's brought up appearing. Of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. When I was prepping this, I started about two weeks ago and I had about 12 pages. And if I went through all of them today, we wouldn't get out till tomorrow. So I had to shorten it down. It's an amazing text. A lot of deep truths in this text. But I'm going to take you back to that four. The four goes back to verse 10, where Titus says this, or the book of Titus, I'm sorry, Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrines of God our Savior. Oftentimes I hear people that say, I don't, I love Jesus, but I don't like the doctrines. I'm like, that that doesn't make any sense. You do love doctrines. Doctrine just means the teachings in the Word of God. We love the doctrines, and he starts with one that is so vital to us, the doctrine of salvation. You and I want that doctrine without a doubt, or you won't be saved. But this idea of doctrine or adorning it is this. It's making it attractive. 
And, and we, we get some insights from Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 33, he says this, I will put my law within them, my teachings. I will put them within you. And I will write them on their hearts. Meaning you will live by what God is teaching you. It, it's all about, do you love God's instructions? Do you love the word of God? And it's not just that. I've met many people that have great head knowledge, but they have no practice. The Bible is about learning it to put it into practice. And that's when your life is radically transformed. And that means you've got to love the teachings in the word of God. You've got to love the doctrines. Another great passage on this is 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. And it's about grace. He says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Meaning grace has always existed. It existed before God created anything. And he says, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Grace is another doctrine we embrace. It's unmerited favor. It's something you, don't, you and I don't deserve. And God says, I'm going to give it to you. We go, oh, I want that. So I want to be saved. And you want to be saved. So let me give you the context. In the first part of chapter 2, he deals with the doctrines that God is our Savior and should be so attractive that it radically changes your life. When you get a hold of your salvation and what God did for you, you want to talk about it. And you want to live it. Let me put it in a practical way. If what you believe does not change how you live, your belief system is really bad. Put it another way. If what you believe doesn't change the way you live, your religious system is really bad. The book of Titus is he's desiring for our beliefs and our behaviors to be transformed. And eventually they become aligned. And it's a growth process we call sanctification. The minute you come to know Christ, He wants to change your life. And you know that. Some of you have been through it. And God's molding and shaping you and making you into His Son, to be like His Son. And it's a great process because He likes to take great sinners and humble them. Some of us don't like how he does it, but he does a good job at it. God's in the business of life change. And it happens throughout the rest of your life. You and I have met people that go, I don't like change. And I go, yeah, you do. You're growing every year. You're changing. Things are falling apart the older you get. Not talking about me. But it happens. Things happen. Life changes 
Can you imagine the people in Ukraine right now? You talk about radical life change? They're fleeing their houses. People are going there to help them. They're going through change. So let's take a look a little deeper in our text today. I want to start now. I'll get to my outline. My outline is this. Radical life change begins with God. Verse 11. I actually have four points. If you got the little paper, it only had three. We're going to do four. Life change begins with God. Look at Titus 2.11 with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Remember I told you to mark appeared. The grace of God, the word is connected to Christ's incarnation. It's connected to Christ unveiling, Christ showing up on earth. It's the incarnation, the atonement, the birth, the death, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ has appeared. In 1 John 1.14, it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ is grace. I was telling people in the first service that, that you and I really can't offer grace to somebody. Biblical grace, you can't do it. You're not God. We tend to use that word, though. I'll show that person grace. No, grace is something that the other person doesn't deserve. It's undeserved. Grace is something that God gives to you and you don't deserve it. And He gives it to us. We call it unmerited favor. And we hold on to that one. Because we are all born as great sinners. We're great selfish people in need of a great Savior. And God, through His wisdom, says, I'm going to give you grace when you don't deserve it. And I'm going to radically change your life. So let me give you some characteristics about this grace. Grace brings salvation. So when you think of Jesus, think of grace. It brings salvation. Salvation refers to deliverance or to preservation. We all need to be delivered. Salvation brings deliverance from our enslavement to our natural selfish desires. We all have natural selfish desires. I do a lot of weddings. And I bring the young couple in. And I go, this is awesome. I've got two sinful, selfish people getting ready to get married. You're on a crash course. And they go, is there anybody else that can do my wedding? I do that to prove that you're selfish people. But I want your marriage to be better. I don't want you to stay as selfish. I want you to become servants of each other. I want you to learn humility. I want you to learn what love and care is. Only person that does that is the one that changes our lives, and that's God. And He goes, I'm going to take away. I'm going to work on your selfish nature. Now, if you don't have a selfish nature, please come talk to me. I have not met one person yet. And if you think you don't, and you come and talk to me, 
that might be a visible representation of Christ. And I haven't seen that yet either. So, so he takes away that. And the second thing, salvation frees us from sin being our master. You need to get this in, in Scripture. It, I mean, sin when before Christ is your master. You live in the realm of sin. You do what the world tells you to do, and you live in that realm. Christ takes you away and says, I'm your master now. You don't have to live in that realm. But I will tell you, you and I have grown up, we've learned how to sin, and we learned how to do it well. And oftentimes we drag that sin nature into the process of Him maturing us. You're going to struggle with sin the rest of your life. It's just going to go from this, and it will get less and less and less, and God will take you home. But you've got to depend on that grace because He's in the business of radically transforming you. Here's a big one. God restores us to... I mean, salvation restores us to God. Wow. Your life, my life, is short. Eternity is forever. This is not our home. And He's going to take us home to be with Him forever and ever and ever. That's why He wants to radically change you. The God that made you has a purpose for your life and He doesn't want you to live like a pagan sinner. Salvation saves us from eternity in hell. A little hellfire and brimstone preaching right there. We sometimes forget there's a heaven and there's a hell. I definitely don't want to go to hell. Salvation recreates the new person that will be radically changed. This is doctrine. This is the teachings from the Word of God. And that's where Titus starts with. He goes, grace and salvation. Then he, then he wants to say, I want to change your life. I'm going to give you some practical steps. So look at point two with me. Radical life change is about training, not trying. I've met way too many believers or people that confess to know Christ that they say, well, you know, someday I'll, I'll take a class. I call them trying. They're not training. I love to study athletes. I used to run a lot. And, and, and you, you look at how they train. They discipline their lives. And, and they, they discipline everything they do to be better. And they've got coaches around them that help them do it. And they say, you got to stick to this. Jesus is saying, I want to train you. Can you imagine if we took on the athletic attitude in training to be more like Christ, what would happen to our lives? We'd be radically trained, changed people. People would go, what is with you? Well, I know Christ and He's working on me. So He's going to give us some things about training, not trying. He's going to train us. The book of Titus is also about discipleship. Discipleship, is the best form to do it is one-on-one. That's the best form of training. I was speaking at a conference of men one time and I asked them, how many of you men had somebody that mentored you, trained you, discipled you one-on-one? -on -one? All these men, and they ranged from 30 on up to 80. 
All these men raised their hands saying, yeah. And then I said, how many of you men right now are discipling or training somebody else? I had one man raise his hand. No wonder the next generation's fallen apart. Because there's not a group investing in them. Getting too preachy and it's getting way too quiet. I better move on. So let me give you. So we looked at last week, it's older men, younger men, older man with the younger man, older woman with the younger man. I've, I've talked to men recently and they're retired. And I go, what are you doing with your life? And they're going, oh, I'm trying to figure it out. And I go, who are you investing in? Oh, I, don't, I don't want to do that. Why not? You have 50, 60 years of life. Invest in the next generation. The payout is way worth it. Look at this, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, meaning change your course, correction, here's how you should live, and training in righteousness. We need to be training. 1 Timothy 4, 6, and 7, he put these things before the brothers. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves in godliness. We're in the business of training. We should take every opportunity to learn more about God's Word. Jesus says, I want you to become like me. we got four books in the Bible that tell you all about Jesus and how He acted, how He responded. But there's a concept in Scripture you've got to catch, and it's in this text. There's things you need to put on what we call the positive, and there's things you need to put off. Those are the negative. And it's, it's this idea... Let's say you've got a problem with anger. You don't just stop being angry. You've got to put on kindness. You've got to change the course. You can't just stop doing something. You have to replace it. Throughout the New Testament, it says you put these things on and you put other things off. So he's given us a couple here. The list is huge in Scripture. But let me give you a couple. First one he starts with, he says, renounce ungodliness. In turning to God, we agree that we must turn away from ungodly living and turn towards godly living. We do not wish for this to occur. We do not simply hope it might happen. We must take ourselves in hand and say no to those things, those behaviors, those attitudes those desires that oppose God. And we have to say no. So, he's telling us there's things you have to stop doing. And then we can learn self-control. Then we can have upright and godly lives. So he starts with renounce ungodliness. Then he goes a little bit deeper and he says, also I want you to get rid of worldly passions. Oh, that's a big umbrella subject in Scripture. And those worldly passions include the following. Let me give you those. 
An inordinate sexual desire. We live in a sex-crazed world right now. And the Bible says you've got to avoid it. Or how about this one? The liquor mania, or what I call the addiction, I've got to have it environment or lifestyle. Excessive yearning, yearning for more material possessions. Got to have it, got to have it, got to have it. Self-assertiveness, meaning my way is right. You ever ran into somebody like that? Yes, you have. Because <laughs> we have a very selfish nature. And people tend to say my way is right. And that results in being quarrelsome. They have an argumentative attitude. They have a lust for dominance. Briefly, it reverse to an inordinate longing for pleasure, power, and possessions. And we get stuck in it. And in 1 John 2.12, he's got the answer to this. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Oftentimes you hear, oh, the world's doing it. It must be okay. When you hear that statement, you should say, if the world's doing it, it's wrong. And you don't, you don't have to think about it any longer. You just go, whoa, if the world thinks it's right, ooh, it's wrong. The other thing he wants us to put off, besides renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, he says in verse 14, he mentions lawlessness. And lawlessness is mean it's a disobedience to God's laws. It's you're, you're reading the Bible and you say, oh, I like this one. Ooh, I don't like that one. No, no, I don't need to love my neighbor. No. We're picking and choosing. That's lawlessness. And it, and it ends up being a form of what we call impurity. The word comes, it's the idea of dirty or contaminated. Have you ever, any of you ever watched Bear Grylls? He's this crazy wilderness guy. And he takes people on these journeys. And um, I like watching him because he's crazy and does crazy things. And he, he takes this person and he had another person. He always brings somebody with him that's never done these things. And they come to this pool of water that's stagnant, and it's just gross. And he goes, we drink that, it will kill us, but we're going to drink it. And I'm like, ooh, got my attention. But he talked about how contaminated it was, how much bacteria was growing in it, and how, what it would do to your body. And you're like, and you could tell the other person's like, I, I don't want to drink it. He goes, no, i got to filter. I'm going to filter it. And we'll drink it. And you could tell the other person's going, I don't even want to drink that. He goes, no, you got to trust the filter. It will do it. And they drank it and they lived. But the point was the world is just like that water. It's a cesspool. And oftentimes we're clinging to things because we like it. You know, the reason we have a problem with our sin nature is some of the sins we like. And God's saying, I want to get rid of those. I want to change you. I want to change who you are. Because you're preparing for something much greater. So I'm in the business of changing you. And then he goes on, he says, I want you to live upright lives. 
respectable, respectable and good. Your lifestyle should point people to God. They should look at you and go, what is with that guy or that cow? Why do they live like, man, they're okay when the world's going crazy. And the reason they live that way is they realize this is not their home. Godly lives, it's, it's, you look at the character traits of Jesus Christ. And you go to places like Galatians chapter 5. And you look at the fruits of the Spirit and you go, man, I need to be more like that. I need to be kind, gentle, patient, good. I need to have joy in my life. No matter what's going on in the world. And then he says, it's for this present age. Are you living for Christ now? Or are you one of those that's waiting for the future? Oh, someday I'm going to get right. But right now I'm still sort of stuck in the, I like this craziness. So radical life change begins with God. Radical life change requires training. You got to look at your life and you got to say, what must I change? I do that all the time. It's called self-evaluation. How am I treating my wife? How am I treating my family? How am I treating friends? I remember one time at a former church, I met this lady and she was a jerk. And I'm like, and she was attending the church. And then later I talked to this, this other pastor. I was their new pastor at the time. And I said, hey, that lady's a jerk. And he goes, yeah, and she's one of our Bible study teachers for the women. And I said, I, I don't think she should be doing that. He goes, yeah, we've had a tough time addressing it. I'm like, I don't want her to be training. I've met men like that. There's, there's men, I don't want them to train my sons. There's other men, I want them to train my sons. It's great to have godly influence in your children's lives and not just the parents. It's a good thing. I love it when my boys go and work for somebody else. And the man's just like, hey, let me tell you about how to do this. And you're like, yeah, go. Beat on them. Teach them how to work. There's a man that I knew that was, a, he's gone to be with the Lord. He loved Jesus. His life represented it well. In his 90s, he would meet with me and he'd say, Dave, what are you learning from Scripture? And I'm like this. Hey, what are you learning? I want to learn from you. I want to be like you. And he's all, no. Like I, he goes, I'm so excited about the next generation. I never forgot that, man. And that's the way I look at the next generation. I'm excited. They're going to do stuff. But we've got to disciple them. We've got to influence them. Okay, I'm getting too preachy. Let's move on. So, why are we training? Look at number three. Oh, I didn't give you the put-ons. I'm sorry. I gave you the put-offs. Let's put on. Okay, put-off. Let's put on. I, I talked about living a self-controlled life, upright, godly life in this present age. You've got to look at your life and always evaluate, how am I changing? And you know, it, it happens for the rest of your life. You're going to keep changing, okay? That's okay. You're supposed to be changing. God's in the business of changing us. It's not instant. That's why he uses the word training. 
So, why are we training? Look at number three with me. Radical life change is focused on eternity. Look at 13 and 14. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our glory, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So why the training? We're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of our Lord and Savior. See, what you're training for puts everything in perspective. See, the reason why God wants to transform you is you're going to spend eternity with Him. Better start training now and not wait. You and I need to be redeemed from our sinful nature. Christ redeemed you, and now He wants to change you. He wants to make you into something radically different. Actively waiting helps us cultivate habits and lifestyles that honor Him. You've got to realize Christ is coming back. This is not our home. We need to be ready for His appearing. Are you excited about that? You know, I get the privilege as a pastor to do a lot of funerals. And I've done them for believers and non-believers. I've done them for believers where the family's going, this is going to be a party because we know grandpa or grandma's in heaven. And it's a party. Or they're sad that grandpa's gone or grandma or whoever the person's gone but they have a peace that they know where they are. Then I've done funerals for people that don't have a clue. They're the saddest things. There's just no hope. Christ gives us hope. This is not our home. Are you excited about His return? You know, the world's going crazy. We have a worldwide epidemic going on. There was a war starting. There's other wars going on in the world too. And I tend to look at that through the eyes of Scripture and go, woo, could be happening. I'm not going to guess a date. Christ told me I don't know. But He did say in Matthew 24, look for the signs of the end of time. And when things get crazy, people turn to the Gospel. we got to be ready to give hope to those around us that are questioning you're going to run into people that are going to go, man, I don't get what's going on in the world. Can you give them hope? You need to. You need to be prepared. So how are you preparing? When you look at Galatians 5, look at the whole chapter. The first part's some sins you got to get rid of. The second part is these fruits. Look at it and evaluate your life and go, God, help me in these areas. And he loves that prayer. Problem is, he oftentimes gets out a really big chisel. And you know, sometimes I like the little chisel, but I don't like the big one. But he chisels away on us because he goes, I want to change you. And he's in the business of transforming us. So radical life change begins with God. Radical life change requires training. Radical life change is focused on eternity not the here and now. 
And radical life change declares. Look at verse 15 with me. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remember, he's talking to a young pastor, but he's also talking to us. He's saying there's things you've got to be stating. The world needs to know you're different. Let me give you the three that he's telling us to declare. We've got to talk about grace and what salvation really is. Salvation's not by works, it's by God's grace. It's His unmerited favor that He gives upon to us that believe. We need to talk about that your life needs to be changed. And you need training for that change to happen. We need to be focused on eternity. You know, we only have one life to live. Are you preparing for eternity? Are you just preparing to be a good secular person? I talk to a lot of men and I've talked to people that own businesses and I've asked them, how are you ministering in your business? What are you doing to impact the people that work for you for the gospel? I've had men where their mouths drop and they look at me and they're like, oh, I never thought of that. Again, they're saying, can I talk to a different pastor? And I'm saying, no, what are you doing? God's giving you these people that are working for you. And some of them have started Bible studies now. Some of them are, I'm like, hey, you're running the business. Do what you want to do. Take care of these people. And they've been doing it. Then I've talked to a lot of men and women. I'm like, yeah, employees. And, and I say, what are you doing at your job? To impact other people for Christ. I've known a lot of people that are doing amazing things. Our ministry isn't here. This is an equipping place. Your ministry's out there. We're to equip people to impact other people. And if God's given people in your lives, guess what? They're your neighbor. That's who you work with. You only got one life. The book of Titus reminds us that our beliefs about God impact every decision we make. Now, oftentimes I'm guilty of that. I'm, not, I'm guilty of not doing that. I'll make a decision and then I, later on I'll go, ooh, I should have looked that up. Or I might know it biblically. And I'm like, ooh, that was a dumb decision. If I would have went to the Word of God first. God gives us great instructions on life. But we've got to know it to make decisions. And those decisions we make radically change us. Paul makes it clear that the church that teaches and preaches sound doctrine or sound teaching will result in lives that are changed. And I'm not talking about just head knowledge. I'm talking about head knowledge that goes to the heart and you do it. That's sound teaching. But it's putting it into practice. Not only will people be saved from their sins through good teaching, but God's grace will motivate them to live out a saving faith with renewed and purified hearts. So let me give you some conclusions. Sorry, I'm going a little bit over. We'll be done in two minutes, okay? First one is, we have a sin problem. It's called a curse in the Bible. And it only can be changed by God. God's the one that changes people. 
Second thing, God promised to cure a cure for that sin and death, and it's by His grace, His unmerited favor. The third thing, God desires us to repent and turn from our sins. That's not just accepting Christ, that's the rest of your life. When I sin and when you sin, we're supposed to repent and go to God and say, man, I am sorry. Help me not to do that again. And our God's in the business going, okay, I'll fix that. But we got to come to His throne. God desires us to mature. The Bible talks about life transformation and it takes training. It means you got to take time to be in God's Word. You've got you to learn the disciplines in the Bible. You've got to learn how to spend time talking to God. You've got to learn what you have to put on and what you have to put off. God will radically change your life and bring you into conformity to His will. God will take you home to be with Him. That's good news. I can't wait for that day. It's going to be amazing. God wants our beliefs and behaviors to be transformed. This is how you know you are saved. It's not your head knowledge. It's what you're doing with that head knowledge. Now let me take you back to that story. Remember I was burdened by, do the people around me know that I'm a believer? Well, something interesting happened in 2003. There's literally hundreds of cubicles around where I worked. And I wondered, not the people that I did a Bible study with at that work. I wondered about everybody else. Do they, do they know I'm a believer? Well, in 2003, we went in and attacked Iraq. And all of a sudden, I noticed a line showing up at my cubicle. And the, guy, the other two guys that taught Bible studies. People were going there. And you know what they were asking? They were asking me and all those other three guys. They said, does this have something to do with end times? Do I need to get right with God? Well, the nice thing is it validated they saw something in me. And God was saying, hey, I'm going to validate it. The sad part was these people were going, I'm going to live my pagan life. Ooh, the world's getting bad. Should I get right with God? And I said, ooh, so I started talking to these people. Finally, I had to stop it because we're supposed to be working. And I said, let's meet either at lunch or after work and let's talk. Because see, Christians need to be available to help people that are struggling. And I talked at over at least 100 different people that had questions. And what they were saying is, the world's going crazy. Should I get right? I'm all, yeah, you should get right. But don't play this game of when or if or might. Christ wants to change you. It was so neat. God validated something in me. All of you are called to minister to the people that are around you. Do they know you're a believer? It's a great question to ask yourself. Do they know? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray for each and every one of us that we will be people that minister to other people. I pray that we'll look at our own lives and ask you, Lord, what do I need to change? And I pray that you will work on us. Help us to be molded and shaped the way 
you want us to live and you call us to a righteous life. Help us to do that. Help us to think of ways of, of ministering to people around us. Maybe taking time to listen to them. Maybe guiding them. Maybe discipling them. So I pray for us that we will influence people now. When the world's going crazy, there's people going to be asking questions. And I pray for us to be prepared for the answers. Give us the time to do that. And we pray that in your precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.